Lord, open our eyes and our hearts this morning uh, to hear your message. Lord, we want to be deliberate in praising and worshiping you. We love you, Father. We praise you and want to give you all the glory now. In Jesus' name, amen. I have uh, brought with me this morning this rather indiscriminate little white rag. But you know how many uses that one of these has? It's amazing. <coughs> I can use this to blow my nose if I need to. I can use this to wipe my brow if I'm hot. I can clean my glasses. If I just ate a big plate of ribs, I could wipe my face off. There's so many things I can do with this. But there's something that I can do with this. I can take this to anywhere in the world, and almost everybody will know what I'm doing with it. Does anybody have any idea what that is? Exactly. I give up. I surrender. Everyone everywhere almost knows what that means. And you know, when I think about surrender, um, our country history-wise, is rather short compared to the rest of the world. But down through history, in the many battles, wars that we've been in, there's been a lot of surrenders. The British surrendered to us. The Japanese surrendered. The Germans surrendered. And there's probably been many that I'm missing here. And I think when we hear the word surrender, a lot of us, the first thing that pops into our mind is... We did surrender. We, we lost. We gave up. And maybe that is the war. But I want to look at another type of surrender here this morning, and that's surrender to God. And what does that look like? And how do we do that? Rich Mullins wrote a song, and I can't even tell you what the name of the song is. But in the song, there's a line that says, and pardon me for his grammar, Surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. How true that is for some of us. We just want to hang on. We don't want to let go. We don't want to give up. Because if we give up, if we surrender, it's the sign of a quitter. It's the sign of I couldn't do it. And we don't like that feeling. When I was young, my father used to tell me, if you start something, you need to finish it. And that's, a still, that's still a good idea today. If you start something, you need to finish it. Don't be a quitter, because the thought of quitting equals failure. We don't want to be failures. We don't want to be losers. Everybody wants to be winners. That's the way our culture has bred us to be a winner. <clears throat> Many of you are, are familiar with Dale Earnhardt, the late NASCAR driver. And years ago, when he was younger, he was in a race. And he was, the race was about the last lap, and he was in second place and really had no chance of winning the race. But if you know anything about NASCAR, it's not necessarily about the winning, as it is finishing and points and how it all works. So second place is not so bad. And he had second wrapped up. Third was way behind. But he pushed his car to the limit to try to win the race, and he crashed. 
and all the cars behind him passed him. And after the race, he was asked, why did you do that? Why did you, you had second place wrapped up. Why did you push it? And his comment was, second place is just the first loser. <clears throat> he wanted to win, and it, he was going to win at all costs. It did not matter to him. He didn't want to be second. He didn't want to surrender at the cost of eventually his life because he died in his car many years later. But think about that now, too. We're enjoying right now the Olympics, the Winter Olympics. And you think about every one of those athletes that is at those games. And if you ask most of them, they would say they came to win. They came to win. Some of them realize that's not going to happen. The competition is great, and they're just it's not going to happen. They're still there. They're enjoying the experience. But most of them would tell you, I didn't train this hard, and I didn't train this long to lose. I came to win. In fact, some of them are very obnoxious about it, and it bothers me. But some of them are very humble about it. We heard a Russian skater the other night. You couldn't, you tra <coughs> excuse me, a translator, but he was so humble about his background. And it was just, I want him to win. You know, the American was an obnoxious little snob. He can go, you know, it's too bad, but he was. And anyway, for most of them, it's not a win at all cost. But they want to win. Remember the old wide, wide world of sports? That show's not on anymore, but their motto, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. <laughs> Brother. <clears throat> Think about this. How many times do you suppose in the last year that you have said to yourself, or maybe someone else, I give up. I've had it. Whatever it is, I'm done with it. I'm just, I've had it. You know, I've done that many times. <clears throat> and usually it's if I'm working on the computer or maybe I'm working on my car or I'm working on something around the house. I'm frustrated because it's not going right. And I, I give up. Well, usually what happens is I walk away, I think about it, pray about it, Maybe an hour, maybe two hours, maybe a couple of days. But I'll go back and I'll finish and I'll fix whatever it was because I can't leave the plumbing all open under the sink or whatever it is I'm doing. I can't give up. So the reality then is not that I'm really surrendering at that point because I say I give up. I'm kind of reevaluating the situation. I'm going to think about it a little bit. I didn't really give up. I didn't really surrender. But when I started thinking about this giving up or surrendering on a temporary basis, which is what I was doing, then the question becomes in my mind, is that what I'm doing for God? Is that how I'm looking at this aspect of surrendering to Him? You know, Lord, I want Your will to be done in my life until I figure out a better way to do it. <clears throat> if it's convenient or if it's to my advantage, 
You know, if that's how I'm looking at it, and that's how I'm basing my feelings, I've got it all wrong. That's a worldly view. That's a very worldly view, because then I don't like losing, and I don't want to give up anything that's mine, because it's mine, and you can't have it. It's mine. And I've worked too hard. There's got to be another way. There's got to be another option. There has to be another answer. It's mine. I'm not giving it up. And you know, no matter how I look at it, no matter how I try to analyze it or scrutinize it or break it down, it all boils down to if I truly want to be in God's will, I have to be willing to surrender. I have to be willing to give up basically everything. Not just some things. Not just one or two. Everything. But I think we need to remember first, what I, what I feel about this is most important, is when we're talking about surrendering ourselves or turning our lives over to God, the first thing we need to remember is that He doesn't make mistakes. He makes no mistakes. So if we're going to let Him run our life, if we want His will, His plan in our life, it's perfect. I mean, after all, here's the creator of the universe, the Lord of heaven and earth, and he wants a relationship with me, with us. He wants to mold us into that perfect image that he has for us. Sometimes we don't see. It's the old image of the potter and the clay. And, you know, we should be excited about that. We should be standing in line saying, me next. Sometimes we don't want to be in that line. Sometimes we refuse and we go another direction. And usually when we do that, that's when we experience the unhappiness and strife and difficulties and problems. Not that we won't see them at any other time, but we can pretty much gather that that's going to happen when we stray. The good thing about that is God's waiting right there for us when we come back. If you take the word surrender and you look it up in the dictionary, it says to relinquish possession or control to another, to submit to the power of another, the power and authority of another. Who's the power? Who's the authority? God. It seems pretty simple. But, you know, if you took a, <clears throat> take an informal survey, and let's say you go to the mall, and you ask people that just walk by, and you say, sir, what's important to you? What, or ma'am, what is important to you? You're probably going to get some answers like eh, personal peace, um, happiness, uh, I want to be comfortable, prosperity, I want to be prosperous, I want security in my life. Good health, that's a good one. Good friends, it's okay. Basically, they're going to say they want fulfillment in whatever they're doing in their life. They want to be fulfilled. You know, when I think about that, there isn't anything on that list that I wouldn't necessarily want myself. But what we need to remember is that a lot of times these plans that we make for ourselves or these desires that we have for ourselves 
conflict or even ignore God's plan for us. And that doesn't mean that God won't provide some of those things. Measures of peace or prosperity or happiness, He can do that. He can do that. But what I think it means more is that in order to surrender to His plan, we've got to tell Him that we won't live for these things. These aren't things that we're going to um, base our life on. These aren't things that we're going to strive above and beyond anything else to get or to do. This is not our motivation. These things are not the motivation. These are just like side benefits from God's grace and His love. Not motivation. There's nothing necessarily wrong with those in the right context. So, as I think about that then, so what does it, what does it really mean to surrender? How do we do it? All right, God, I surrender. You know, I'm, I'm done. You, you can take me now. I don't think that's all there is. We could raise our hands. You know, this is interesting. I thought about this too. And we do it here in church. We raise our hands because we're praising God. <clears throat> Again, this is another worldwide way of showing what? I give up. You surrender. And the reason that they want you to put your hands in the air so they can see whether you have anything in them. You have no weapons. You have nothing in your hands. And as I thought about this, when we raise our hands to God and they're empty, He can see that I'm not hanging on to anything. I'm not grasping anything. Lord, they're empty. I'm coming to You with with nothing. And that's the way I want it to be. Thinking about this, the first thing that popped in my mind is if I want an example of how this looks, where do I, where do I go? Where do I go? Well, Jesus was the perfect example of surrendering to God's will. He exemplified that. And Paul writes in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So as I read that and as I look at that, I see characteristics or I see attributes that Jesus had to surrender his will. And I'm going to run through these real brief and then we're going to go back and and look at them a little more. But first of all, it says he was of no reputation. And Stan taught a few months ago about reputation, if I remember right. And in the text... uh, it says that this could be more clearly translated to mean that he emptied himself. In other words, he gave up what was rightfully his. And I'm not talking about his deity. He's God the Son. He claims so he is. But what he did do was he gave up or set aside the position 
that he held, the Son of Man. He gave up the privileges that came along with that of being God the Son. He gave up heavenly glory. When you think about that, heavenly glory for the dust, the heat, and everything that went along with Jerusalem and all the surrounding areas. He gave up a face-to-face relationship with God for a love-hate relationship with the pharaohs, or excuse me, the Pharisees, and even the Jews. He loved them. They hated him. He gave up any authority that he had, any he could exercise to submit completely to God's will. He gave up any heavenly treasures that he was experiencing for basically poverty. He had nothing during his ministry. In fact, in Luke 9, it says, he was quoted saying, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. He had nothing. He gave up a very favorable relationship with his father for the cross, where all, this, where all the wrath of God was poured out for our sins. He became a servant. It says he was a bond servant. And we know a servant or a slave, if you will, their sole purpose is to do the will of their masters. Whatever that is, that's their, that's their purpose. And then finally, it says he was obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. He could have opted out. He could have changed his mind. In fact, he did say, Lord, if there's any other way, God said, no, this is what I want you to do, and he did. Now, these aren't necessarily all the attributes or all the characteristics, maybe, that um, a person needs for surrendering to God's will, but I, I picked these out of here because I want to talk about them again briefly this morning. And the four that we're going to look at are being a <clears throat> bondservant, emptying yourself, being humble, and being obedient. And what, what do those characteristics look like to us? First of all, we're going to look at uh, emptying ourselves and and that's kind of difficult to even talk about, but we're going to try to get through this. If we went through all the stuff that we've accumulated in our houses and, and everything that we've gotten over the years, we're going to find a lot of things that we don't use or maybe have worn or done anything with possibly for years. But yet, we still have it. For one reason, because it's ours. And not only that, we don't want to let go of it, but what do we do then? We go out and rent a space so we can put more stuff in it. And that's why these rental companies are popping up the little buildings everywhere. People are just running out of space, I guess, or they just buy so much stuff they've got to put it somewhere. <clears throat> so if we took an in- Mike was talking about this, about taking an inventory of our lives. If we take an inventory of our lives and what we're doing and how we're living, um, I think we'll see that there's things in there that we need to let go of, that we need to get rid of, that we need to turn loose. And that's part of emptying yourself. And maybe, maybe it's a grudge. Maybe we've had this grudge for years about somebody. 
Maybe it's someone in our own family, and they don't even know. They have no idea. We've been harboring all these feelings all these years. In Mark 11, 25 and 26, I'm going to paraphrase this. It says, if you're not willing to forgive, God's not willing to forgive you. The bitterness and contempt is keeping God from working in our lives. We're not submissive. We're not letting go. We're not getting rid of those feelings. Or maybe there's an idea or opinion or something that we have that's possibly been hanging around for a long time, and it's maybe even caused some problems in the past, but yet we're not, we don't want to turn it loose. We don't want to let go. Back to that survey, um, we talked about what's important, peace, health, happiness, you know, not necessarily bad things, but those can dominate our thoughts and they can distract us from our relationship with the Lord. And we need to be willing and we need to be open to change and it might be very uncomfortable. <clears throat> Let's say I invite you over to my house and I want you to come because I've invited you. And you show up and you knock on the door and I say, come in. And you try the door and it's locked. I can't come in because it's locked. I'll try it again. No, it's still locked. Now, I know the door's locked, and there may be several locks on the door, but I can't bring myself to unlock those and let you in. Now, you're not going to kick the door down or crash through the window to come in unless I let you in. You're not going to force yourself in. I think this is kind of a good picture of, of how God's working in our lives. He wants in. He wants to have the relationship with us, but yet we're hanging on to these things that we're not allowing him to come in. We've got that door closed with all those locks on it, and those locks are these different characteristics and different attitudes. And we want him to come in. We've invited him to come in, but yet we're still sitting there with that locked door in front of him. And these things may look different for each one of us. And um, we're going to breeze through these again this morning. Quite honestly, if that's not where you're at and that's not an issue, that's great. But if it is, if there are things that you're hanging on to and there are things that are holding you back, spring's right around the corner. Maybe it's time for some spring cleaning. Maybe we need to get out the broom and sweep some of these things out the door and... Um, things that we really don't need or we really need to turn loose of. Let's sweep those distractions away. Take another lock off the door. The next thing I wanted to, to look at is um, being a servant and being willing to serve. Not expecting anything in return. In Matthew 20, 28, it says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and gave his life as a ransom for many. Not only do we need to serve God, but we need to serve each other. And we have opportunities within the church to do that. We have opportunities within the community to do that. When you think about all of the organizations just in this town 
that require volunteers, that require people to help them. And we can do that. We can serve. We can go to the rescue mission, or we can donate blood, or whatever it may be. We can serve in our community. And, and in doing that, then we're promoting God's kingdom. We're promoting Christ. You know, I think about just in the last six months here and all the problems we had down in the south with those hurricanes. And the thousands, literally thousands of people that have volunteered to help clean up those areas down there. And leading the way are churches because they want to serve God. They want to serve. They want to help. And many of them are still helping today because it's still a problem and they're still down there and they're still helping. In the tail end of Galatians 5.13, Paul writes, but through love serve one another. We can't be selfish about it. And this should be done in a desire out of wanting to do it, not because we feel it's an obligation or a duty. We want to do it. That doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong if you do it out of duty, but in God's economy, He wants us to have the heart and the head issue, is what I call it, to do that. <clears throat> and maybe, you know, maybe we're feeling uh, a little less than thrilled about that. But we should be excited. We should be excited to know that we can actually help someone. And by doing that, we can edify and encourage. And that's an excellent way of promoting God's kingdom. And if you can serve without being concerned about your own needs, and what, again, what you're going to get out of it, if you can do that, God will meet your needs. He will meet your needs. He says in Matthew 6, 8, The Father knows the things you need before you even ask. He'll meet the need. And we won't even have to ask him. If he sees us doing what he requires us to do and knows we're doing it with the right heart, he'll meet our needs. If we're a willing servant and we do that, not expecting anything in return, we just unlocked another lock on that door. It's getting a little more accessible now. Humility. This is a biggie for a lot of us. Um, and I admit I did a little bit of plagiarism here. I like to use the Internet to um, do research on, and I came across this article. And what it, what it said here was just too good for me to try to paraphrase anything, so I just copied it. So this is coming from a website called BibleStudyLessons.com. Proper humility towards God is an admission of our own weakness, unprofitableness, and inability to obtain or accomplish by ourselves the things we need. We need help from someone far greater than we are. God knows what we need and what is good far better than we know, and he has the power to do what needs done. Humility will lead us to appreciate him, trust his will, <clears throat> excuse me, 
and give him the glory rather than exalting oneself. That's a great, great picture. And it just, to me, uh, the first thing I thought of was the Matthew 23 verse, verse 12, where Jesus said, And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And this verse just solidifies in my own mind how much God really does dislike pridefulness and what he can do and will to those who struggle with it. You can look through Scripture and find many ways God has dealt with people that are prideful. Romans 12.16, Paul writes, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And you know, we... We need to give credit where credit is due. We need <clears throat> to admit when we have a special ability, if we have a gift, if we have something that makes us excel, it wasn't us. God gave that ability to us, and he wants us to use it for his glory. Whatever it is, whether it's in athletics, whether it's in music, whether you're business-minded, uh, if you're just an extremely intelligent person and you're going to go on and have PhDs and doctorates and all these things, God gave you that ability. He gave you something that He wants you to further His glory and His kingdom with. And He wants us to acknowledge that it is Him. He wants us to be humble. He wants us to say, Lord, I didn't do this on my own. It was You. If you're humble, your focus is not on how you can impress the world. Rather, what you can do to help wherever and whenever you can. And that kind of goes back to the, the hurricane victims and how people are helping down there. James 4, 6 and 10 says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Psalm 75, 6 and 7 says, But exultation comes neither from the east nor the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And there's another verse in Proverbs, Pride comes before the fall. I, I, I didn't look that one up, but that's basically the same thing. You're going to be prideful, and you're going to have it, but then you're going, to, you're going to be taken down. Anybody see a pattern here? Pride and <clears throat> unhumility is just another lock on that door. And again, we don't, if we don't have the key already, God's given us the ability to obtain it. He's not withholding it. And He's waiting. He's waiting right on the other side. We've almost got it unlocked now. We want to look at obedience. And you know, as a parent, the first thing I think of when obedience pops into my mind is my children. I want my children to be obedient. <clears throat> and children need to be taught how to be obedient. 
because they have, as we all did, this natural instinct or a natural inclination to be disobedient. So we work with them, we train them, we teach them, we discipline them if we need to, punish them if we have to. But we want them to know right from wrong. That's why we do it. We don't do it because we enjoy it. We do it because it's the right thing to do. It's biblical. We want them to be productive citizens. Proverbs 22.6, all the parents I'm sure know this verse, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. There's only one right way, folks, God's way. There's only one right way, and that's why he tells us to train him up in the way he should go, the only way they should go. And you know, when you think about this, children who learn this at an early age have a very strong foundation to build on for years to come. And I thought about that. It's not because you taught them that way. It's because they know why they're doing what they're doing. Because so many times my children might say, why? And I say, just because. Just because. That's not, that's not a good enough answer just because. Sometimes it works. Sometimes you have to. But if you can tell them, because that's what the Bible says. And let me show you why. And you give them the explanation. When they grow older, that foundation is just so much stronger. But you know, we're not necessarily talking about children here either, because uh, as an adult, we fall into that same category. And maybe we just, maybe we didn't have the upbringing. My parents weren't Christians. And I didn't have that upbringing. I thought of a church. I thought of a funeral or wedding because that's the only times I ever went to the church. But that doesn't mean that my parents didn't want me to know right from wrong as they raised me. But it just wasn't done from a biblical perspective. And, you know, our culture today, and this kind of started back in the 60s, but our culture says it's all relevant to your situation. You know, what's right for you is not necessarily right for them, and what's wrong for them is not necessarily wrong for you. There's no absolutes. In fact, sometimes obedience in itself is even mocked. When I was in school, I remember if you were a good kid, you were a goody two-shoes or you were the teacher's pet. You were actually made fun of if you did the right thing. You know, some people think that if you're really obedient, then you don't have any identity. You lost your identity. You're just a mindless robot or a zombie, and all you can say is, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. But, you know, that's where they're wrong, because... We do have an identity, and our identity is in Christ. That's where our identity is. And true obedience does not come because we have to do it. Again, it's not because we have to do it. It's because we want to do it. We want to be obedient. It's a heart issue. It's not just because we're programmed that way. We're called to be obedient. We're called to obey, nothing less. And sometimes we just need to be reminded. 
Deuteronomy 13.4 says, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. That's a pretty good plan. I think that's one that I'd kind of like to follow. You know, Mike has been talking over the last few weeks about living counterculture, swimming upstream, going against the grain. If we live out these characteristics that Jesus did just in those few verses, no reputation, being a servant, humble, being obedient, we are going to run into some resistance. We're going to run into some walls. But, you know, if we're going to surrender to God's will, if we're going to live for Christ, we're going to have to make sacrifices. And they may be painful. I think about some missionaries, and and you can read about all kinds of missionaries down through history. Some of these missionaries basically gave up everything that they had, wherever they lived, to travel halfway around the world, to a country somewhere where they really weren't appreciated. They may not understand the language. Their lives, their very lives were threatened. The conditions are horrible. But yet, you read their writing and they're joyful. Why? Because they're in God's will. They're doing God's will. That doesn't mean that we're all missionaries or should be, but the ones that were that really gave it up were right in the middle of His will, and they knew they were in the middle of His will. You know, everything that happens in this world, I I truly believe, happens for a reason. God causes or allows it to happen. And He has a plan for each and every one of us. And you know, we may become frustrated at times because we want to know what that plan looks like. We want to see it. Every now and then, every once in a while, He may allow us a glimpse But you know, God knows us so well. Scripture says, He knit me together in my mother's womb. He knows me so well that He knows if I see too much, I'm bound to see something that I say, Whoa, wait a minute. Uh Uh-uh. I don't like that. I'm not going there. I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that in my life. And He doesn't want that because it's His plan. Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song, and it's entitled, God is God. And one of the lines in his song says, God is God, and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. And I think that's what's happening now. Because God through His Son Christ and the Holy Spirit are working on the canvas of each one of us's life. Stan's, mine, Bethany's, every one of us. He's working on the canvas of our life. And if we could see it, we may see that it's only half done or a third done. That's because He's not finished. He's not done with us yet. 
He has more to do. And we need to let him do it. You know, back to the potter and the clay. The potter has very hard, very stiff, unmanageable clay. It's very hard to make a very pretty object out of that. But yet if the clay, back up, taking that hard clay and adding some water and doing some different things and working with it, and it can be pliable and it can be soft. And God will do that. But we can be the soft clay that's already ready for him to work. It's already ready for the pot or the vase or whatever it is he wants to make with us. It's much easier and it's much smoother. Life is more comfortable if you want. <clears throat> so if we, if we really want God's will in our life, then we have to think about what we're willing to surrender, what we're willing to give up, sacrifice. What are we willing to sacrifice for God's will to be done in our lives? Back to an earlier thing I said and what Micah said, take an inventory of what we're doing, what we can maybe get rid of, what's hindering God from <clears throat> being or working in our lives, and let go. We need to let go of it. Sweep it out the door. I don't know if Jim Elliott, who was one of the five missionaries that was killed in Ecuador, 50 years ago, coined this phrase, or if it was just something he read or heard. But what he said was, when all this life that we've lived has passed, it's only what's done for Christ will last. And if you think about everything that you do throughout the course of a day, a week, a month, a year, your life, In doing everything for Christ, it's a, it just kind of blows you away because it's, it's such an awesome task. So we don't want to get too caught up in the future. We definitely don't want to worry about what's in the past. We need to be concerned about today. And then when today's done, we need to be concerned about tomorrow. And when tomorrow's done, the next day. We need to take one day at a time to live this way because we can't project it into the future. If we want to be in God's will, if we want to be in Christ's will, if we want to live for Christ and only leave or only, <clears throat> excuse me, have our lives live for Him, that's what we need to do. Before I close this morning, I came across this poem and it's an unknown author, but it deals with this situation a little bit, and it's called The Eternal Ink. I dreamed I was in heaven, where an angel kept God's book. He was writing so intently, I just had to take a look. It was not at first his writing that made me stop and think, but the fluid in the bottle that was marked Eternal Ink. This ink was most amazing, dark black upon his blotter, but as it touched the parchment, it became as clear as water. The angel kept on writing, but as quickly as a wink, the words were disappearing with that strange eternal ink. 
The angel took no notice, but kept writing on and on. He turned each page and filled it till all its space was gone. I thought he wrote to no avail. His efforts were so vain. But he wrote for a thousand pages that he'd never read again. And as I watched and wondered that this awesome sight was mine, I actually saw a word stay black as it dried upon the line. The angel wrote, and I thought I saw, a look of satisfaction. At last he had some print to show for all his earnest action. A line or two dried dark and stayed as black as black can be. But strangely, the next paragraph became invisible to see. The book was getting fuller, the angel's records true, but most of it was blank, with just a few words coming through. I knew there was some reason, but as hard as I could think, I couldn't grasp the significance of that eternal ink. The mystery burned within me, and I finally dared to ask the angel to explain to me of his amazing task. And what I heard was frightful. As the angel turned his head, he looked directly at me, and this is what he said. I know you stand in wonder at what my writing's worth, but God has told me to record the lives of those on earth. The book that I am filling is an accurate account of every word and action and to what they do amount. And since you have been watching, I must tell you what is true. The details of my journal are the strict accounts of you. The Lord asked me to watch you as each day you worked and played. I saw you as you went to church. I saw you as you prayed. But I was told to document your life through all the week. I wrote when you were proud and bold. I wrote when you were meek. I recorded all your attitudes, whether they were good or bad. I was so sorry that I had to write the things that made God sad. So now I'll tell the wonder of this eternal ink. For the reason for its mystery should make you stop and think. The ink that God created to help me keep my journal will only keep a record of the things that are eternal. So much of life is wasted on things that matter not. So instead of my erasing smudging ink in an ugly blot, I just keep writing faithfully and let the ink do all the rest. For it's able to decide what's useless and what's best, and God ordained that as I write, of all you do and say, your deeds that count for nothing will just disappear away. When books are opened someday, as sure as heaven is true, the Lord's eternal ink will tell what mattered most to you. If you just live to please yourself, the pages will be bare, and God will issue no reward for when you get there. In fact, you'll be embarrassed, you'll hang your head in shame because you do not give yourself in love to Jesus' name. Yet maybe... There will be a few recorded lines that stayed that showed the times you truly cared, sincerely loved and prayed. But you always wonder as you enter heaven's door how much more glad you would have been if only you'd done more. For I record as God sees, I don't stop to even think because the truth is written with God's eternal ink. When I heard the angel's story, I fell down, wept and cried. For as yet as I was still dreaming, I hadn't really died. And I said, O angel, tell the Lord that as soon as I awake, I'll give my life for Jesus. I'll do all for his dear sake. I'll give in full surrender. I'll do all he wants me to. I'll turn my back on self and sin and whatever isn't true. And though the way seems long and rough, I promise to endure. I'm determined to pursue the things that are holy, clean, and pure. With Jesus as my helper, I will win lost souls to thee. 
for I know that we will live with Christ for all eternity. And that's what really matters when my life on earth is gone, that I will stand before the Lord and hear him say, Well done, for it is really worth it as my life lies at the brink, and I realize that God keeps books with his eternal ink. Should all my life be focused on things that turn to dust, from this point on I'll serve the Lord. I can, I will, I must. I will not send blank pages up to God's majestic house. For where the record's going now is my eternal home. I'm giving all to Jesus. I now have seen the link, for I saw an angel write my life with God's eternal ink. That's rather convicting story. Um, but I think it is true that we need to concentrate on today and live each life or each day, excuse me, for Christ, and not try to get too caught up in what's to come. day as it comes, we need to live for the Lord, and we need to surrender His will. We need to unlock the door that keeps Him out. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this day. We thank You for this time this morning, and Lord, we do truly want to be in Your will. We want to know, Father, that Your will is being executed in our lives every day. We want to see the fruit of that. We want to feel the fruit of that. We want your glory to be done in our life. And Lord, we know as we sit here this morning that there are things that hinder us from that relationship with you. And for each one of us, Father, those things differ. But Lord, I think we would all admit that the way to turn these things loose, the way to let go, it's just to open up and say, Lord, I'm yours. Do with me as you will. Take me and use me as you want me to. Take that canvas of my life, Father, and paint that picture of me in your eyes, in the beauty that you have, in the beauty that you exude, and in the love that you have for all of us. And then someday when we see that picture, Lord, or that we see that book, Father, may we just be thankful that you sent Christ to die for us and that his death took away our sins and that you opened the door through him. We love you, Father, and we praise you, and we want to give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.